Most of my life, uh, or at least childhood and early adult life, I grew up in closer to a city. Uh, some of it was technically suburbs, but they call it inner suburbs, but it was much more of a city-like environment than a rural or even kind of out there suburban type environment. And so my most cross-cultural move uh, when we moved was back in the 90s when we moved from Philadelphia to Oklahoma City as I began work on the staff Heritage Presbyterian Church. And having grown up in that, what, I, what I'll call that inner suburb type of environment, at row homes, we lived in a city row home, there were gunshots and drug dealers kind of on both sides of us and all this. I'll never forget the first morning living what I at least consider, it was a suburb, but I considered it out in the country in a suburb of Oklahoma City. 4.30 in the morning, I hear this noise. I shoot straight out of bed. Evie, Evie, what is that? My dear wife, her calm, quieting, tender voice says to me, Jeff, calm down. It's a cow mooing. <laughs> I'm much more comfortable with gunshots than I am with cows <laughs> moving. Now, when you move from one area to another, you need to get familiar with your destinations, where you're going, learn directions to get from point A to point B, how to get from one place to another. See, it's not like today, where all you do is you take your phone and you plug in the GPS and you listen to whatever kind of voice. I want to get the voice that has the English accent and, and then have it say, turn it up here. I kind of think that would sound cool. Okay, back then it wasn't like that. You had to go about learning your directions to get from point A to point B to get you to your desired destination. Now Paul is closing out, finishing out Romans chapter 6. And what is he doing? In Romans chapter 6, he's motivating, he's calling the Roman believers, the Roman church, the Roman Christians to holy living. Verse 19 ended with the imperative. I'm going to call us to remember now. It was two weeks ago to remember Rick's sermon and the difference between the indicative and the imperative. Because one of the things that's tricky about verse-to-verse -verse preaching is sometimes we hear a verse and we forget about what we learned previously. Don't do that. Okay, you've got to remember the indicative of this chapter. You are no longer under law, you are under grace. You have, because of your union with Christ, you have died unto the realm and the tyranny and the dominion of sin, and you live under the freedom and the liberation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it leads to a question. Verse 15 asks the question, what then? You know, it's kind of Paul. Commentators call this a diatribe style of teaching or of letter writing. He's anticipating an objection. This is a rhetorical technique. And he says, what then? Should we live in sin or continue to live in sin because we're not under law but under grace? And of course he answers that, by no means, of course not. He's basically not saying, that's a stupid question, but in a sense he's saying, that's a stupid question. And he goes on to answer that particular question. And he answers the question with something I like to call the propulsion of grace. 
that grace propels us, if we truly understand grace and what it is, that it's much more than a get-out-of-jail-free card. Grace is not simply Jesus died for your sins so you could go to heaven when you die, and now this life doesn't matter at all. Grace is what propels you to truly understand. Grace is what propels you to holy living, to what the wisdom writer said, the fear of the Lord. I want you to think about some of this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs chapter 1 says. And what develops the fear of the Lord? Psalm 130 said, O oh Lord, if you kept a record of sins, O oh Lord, who could stand? The psalmist is not using the word grace, but what is he doing here? He's defining what grace is. Lord, if you kept a record of all the ways we don't love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, all the ways we don't love our neighbor as ourselves, all the ways we are as Rick so rightly <coughs> challenged us with, we're self-righteous, we're judgmental, we don't do what we should do, we do what we shouldn't do. If you kept a record of that, which of us could stand for even one second? And then the psalmist says, but with you, there is forgiveness, grace. But the rest of the verse, he says, but with you, there is forgiveness. That indicating purpose, you may be feared. In other words, there is forgiveness that you may be worshipped. There is forgiveness that we may live holy lives. That we may, as verse 19 says, present our members. Because we're under grace, we are now propelled to present our tongues and our minds, our brains and our hearts, our affections and our wills, our hands and our feet, all that's included in our members, we present them as slaves of righteousness. The imperative always flows out of the indicative. Holiness always flows out of grace. Now Paul is concluding this chapter, calling us, See, this, this chapter is a call to holy living. If I don't give you the context, let me tell you right up front what the danger is. It's very easy to read the commands and read the imperatives, and especially where Paul is going to motivate them by saying, here are the destinations. You want to sin? Get what the destination is. It's very easy to read those and go, oh my goodness, I better get my act together. The result of not living holy living is that's a bad result. The wages of sin, I read that. Ezekiel 18, the soul that sins dies. Very easy to develop kind of this. See, if you want to know what we fall back into, we fall back into moralism and legalism all over. In context, Paul is saying, grace propels you out of liberation and free. You've been freed from the tyranny and the dominion. Sin is no longer your master. You're no longer a bondservant to the dominion of sin. You are a bondservant to God through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, enveloped and wrapped up in Trinitarian love so that you can lay down your life and your members as slaves of righteousness, which leads to eternal life. So Paul is, is calling the church and the believers at Rome to holy living, to present yourselves as slaves of righteousness. And he says, why are we to pursue holiness? Why are we to present ourselves as slaves of righteousness? And he gives two reasons. And it's really simple. One, because sin destroys everything. And two, because grace restores 
sin is holy and totally destructive. All you have to do is look at life to see that. We'll prove it from the text, but it doesn't take much to look at the state of relationships, to look at the state of marriages, to look at the state of families, to look at the state of our world around us to see the destructive, corrosive power of sin. But the good news in verse 22 gives some of my favorite words in the scriptures. But now, whenever I read them, you know, oh, there's hope. And the hope is that grace restores everything. Okay. Look with me in verse 20. In verse 20, Paul says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Now, verse 20 begins with the word for. And what he's doing is he's giving the basis or the reason for the imperative of verse 19. The imperative of verse 19 was present your members, feet, hands, minds, hearts, the members of your body as slaves of righteousness. And verse 20 explains why believers should present their members as slaves of righteousness instead of slaves of sin and impurity and lawlessness. And at first glance, the way Paul does this might seem a little strange. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. How is that motivational? What he's basically doing here is he is inviting a bit of self-reflection on the counter on the case of believers. He's saying, I want you to have some self-awareness, some self-examination, some self-reflection here a little bit. And he's reminding the Roman Christians, and of course he's reminding us as well, that there is no middle ground. You're either slaves of sin or slaves of righteousness. So he's inviting this self-reflection, and he says in verse 21, well, what fruit were you getting at at that time? So he's calling you to reflect on your pre-converted life, the life before you were in Christ, when you were slaves of sin and totally free in regard to righteousness. You truly could do whatever you want. Be creative. You're free in regard to righteousness. Sin any way you want. But he's saying, look at verse 21, he's saying, what fruit did that get you? Kind of like I'm reminded of watching Dr. Phil. Not that I watch Dr. Phil, but isn't he the one famous for saying, how does that work for you? <laughs> Verse 21 is kind of a how-does-that-work-for-you type of verse. Paul is saying, think about your life. What fruit did it get for you? I'm not speaking against things like antidepressants and anti-anxiety medicine. They're needed many times. All you have to do, though, is read the statistics to see how much they're on the rise. How's it working for you? Look at loveless marriages. Look at relational tensions. Look at abuse in all of its forms. Look at pornography and the rampant use of pornography. Look at all of the injustices and issues and divisions and struggles. Do you not see the corrosive effect? Paul is saying, I want you now, Christians, remember he's writing to a church. This is not an evangelistic call. What is Romans? It's the letter of Paul to the church at Rome. Last I heard it, these believers were supposed to be living in churches. And so he's writing to believers, and I'm not saying these verses don't have an evangelistic use, but he's writing primarily to believers. He's calling us to holy living out of the indicative of grace, and he's saying, I want you to think about your former life. What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which now you look back and you're ashamed? You look back at the ugliness of your self-righteousness. You look back at the fruit it got you. 
And he says, for the end of these things is death. Thomas Schreiner in his commentary, I think, puts it very well. He says the logic is as follows. <clears throat> slavery to righteousness is much better than slavery to sin. Slavery to righteousness is certainly preferable to slavery to sin, since the former, slavery to righteousness, yields good fruit and leads to sanctification and eternal life. Whereas the latter, slavery to sin, produces shame and has eternal punishment as its consequence. Paul is inviting you, church, to self-reflection, say, look back on your former life. Where did it get you? How was it? How does being in control of your own life, calling your own shots, determining your own steps, being the master of your own fate, doing what you want, that's not working for you. Does that lead to rich communion with God, others, freedom in how you think about yourself, stewarding the world and the gifts of God? What advantage results from the old slavery? What fruit were you getting and where did it lead? John Calvin writes, he says, the light of the Lord alone can open our eyes to behold the filthiness which lies hidden in our flesh. He only then is a mood with the principles of Christian philosophy who has well learned to be really displeased with himself and to be confounded with shame for his own righteousness. Sin destroys everything. And recognize this, friends. Sin at its heart is not just a breaking of the rules. Sin is not, oh, there was the stop sign. I was supposed to come to a full stop. I slid through. I glided through. Darn. I broke the rules. Sin, as a, at its heart, is a rebellion and a violation of how God designed the world to be. See, God created the world to be a place of communion, of rich communion. Do you think God needed anything? And so he created the world because somehow he was lonely. And I was like, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they're not enough for my psychological needs. I better create image bearing. You do recognize I'm being a little sarcastic right now. It's 8.30 service trying to make sure I keep you all awake. God doesn't need anything. So why did he create the world? He created the world to share his love and to commune with his creatures. He shared, he, he created the world for us to enjoy rich relationships with himself, with others, the world around us, ourselves. Sin destroys that. Cornelius Plantinga, who has written, I think, one of the best books on the nature of sin, writes about the impact of sin. He says, in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fully and fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Yes, sin grieves God, rebels against God, hurts other people, but it also corrodes us. Sin is a form of self-abuse. 
in verses 20 and 21, Paul is inviting you to self-reflection and saying, do you see where the life of sin, the life of you being in control of your own life, gets you? What fruit does it produce? Do you see the things of which you used to be ashamed? And the end of those things is death. Yes, death at the end of days, physical and spiritual, but even now, tastes of death in the lack of freedom, the lack of intimacy, the lack of rich communion, the lack of rich relationships, the lack of powerful purpose and significance, the lack of knowing your life matters and your life counts and your actions count. Every time we sin, we are tasting death rather than life. And what did Jesus say? I've come that they may have life and life to its fullness. And friends, that is not, oh, we're so self-centered in our interpretation of the Bible. That is not happy circumstances. That is not, I've come to give you life and life abundantly. No offense to my friends. I've had many dear friends with Campus Crusade and their four spiritual laws has done, has borne wonderful fruit. But we twist God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life to mean, that means I should be married to the perfect person. Everybody should turn their hearts towards me. Everybody should be nice to me. I should always be healthy. All of my relationships should work out. That is not what is meant by fullness of life. Fullness of life, what is meant is life in a new dimension. The fullness of God. The richness of communion with the Trinitarian God. Rich relationships with God, others, ourselves, and the world around us. And we need to understand sin destroys everything. We are not just perpetrators of sin. Here's two truths about every human being you will ever meet. Every human being has sinned against God and others. And every human being has been sinned against by other people. Every human being on the face of the planet is both a perpetrator and a victim. And you need to acknowledge and recognize that as you move out and relate to other people. Okay, that's enough of the first point. You get it? Sin destroys everything. But now the two greatest words in the scripture, verse 22. Don't you love when you read, but now? Don't you just kind of want to sit back and deep breath? But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get, see, this is a Contrast the fruit. Slavery to sin gets you what kind of fruit? Slave of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But now God liberates you from sin's tyranny and enslaves you to himself, which, by the way, is the true and perfect and only freedom. You were built for love and freedom. Your only source of freedom is to be bonded and enslaved to God. Because that gives you the freedom to be fully human. To be what God made you and created you to be. So verse 21, lack of good fruit, ugliness, shame, the outcome is death. Verse 22, good fruit, beauty and truth and loveliness and goodness and it results in sanctification and eternal life. Where verse 23 can conclude and summarizes the whole passage, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God 
is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You hear that? First of all, Paul is reminding, isn't this interesting? We use this all the time and still use it. I'm not telling you not to use it as an evangelistic proclamation. But I want to remind you, he's writing this to Christians. He's saying, Christians, do you remember that your salvation, your freedom, your liberation is a free gift? That God, our benevolent, our over-the-top generous? I mean, who do you think God is? Is he just super rigid and longs to just kind of beat us up? He says the free gift of God is eternal life in the world's true Lord, Jesus Christ our Lord. See, this is not works righteousness at all. This is not moralism or, or legalism. Yes, sin destroys everything, but what is Paul saying? There is no sin. There is nothing you can do that is greater than the grace of God. God's grace is more powerful. I want you to dream and imagine the worst that you can imagine doing. God's grace is infinitely more powerful than that. And God's grace can restore the most broken, the most vile, the most heathen. There is hope for everyone, including Jeff Birch. Hallelujah. <laughs> is that not amazing? Amen. The wages of sin, he's saying, plug it in. You want to put it in a great English accent to listen to the voice that is giving you the destinations. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isaiah 61 was prophesying Jesus' manifesto. Jesus declared this as his manifesto when he read from this scroll in Luke chapter 4. And the manifesto was grace restores everything. When he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And the spirit of the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. To comfort or bind up the brokenhearted, To release captives from bondage. Isn't that what Romans 6 is completely about? You were in bondage to sin. But now you've been released from bondage. To set the prisoners free? To give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes? Friends, yes, sin destroys everything. But grace restores everything. And Paul is calling us to holy living, a holiness propelled by grace, basically saying, what do you embody? Present your members as slaves of righteousness is in your daily life, you can either embody sin or you can embody righteousness. You can either embody sin or you can embody grace. Christians, what do you embody? In your daily life, in your ordinary, in your, the way you relate to your family, the way you commune with God, do you see that grace restores everything, even us? Let's pray. Father, thank you that although the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God, out of your bounty, out of your generosity, is life in a new dimension. Life in all its fullness. It's not just chronological, it is life as you created and intended and designed it to be. And it is for all eternity. 
and the world's true Lord, the world's only Lord. Not anything else that competes with Jesus, but Jesus Christ our Lord. We're going to sing to close out our service. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Lord, give us grace to trust Him more and more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.